Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Hello, hello. I'm Alex. I'm the CEO and founder of Marspace. In this episode, we're going to listen to one conversation we recorded with Rob DeFeo, startup advocate at AWS. In this conversation, we talked about how senior developers can transition to more managerial roles like a CTO. We did that because a few years ago, we saw a huge boom in the developer bootcamp industry. Companies like Ironhack, Levagon, Codeworks, and many others around the globe, some of them international, some of them local, they started to create a lot of new developers. Some people were reshaping or reskilling from other industries or some, let's say, developers with older technologies, they wanted to learn the new ones and keep up to date with the, with the recent technological changes. This huge change brought new players into the ecosystem, but the, I think they didn't have the long-term vision of giving them a perspective of what would be needed once they transition into more uh, senior roles. In this case, we're going to be talking about what it what it takes to become a CTO once you are a senior developer. So what are the skills, what things you should do, what things you should not do, what are the general principles or ethics or even values that you should be driven by once you uh, step up into such an important role as being the technological director of a company, right? Are we ready? Are we not? Is this something that requires a lot of seniority? It requires a lot of training, coaching, mentoring? What is needed? This and much more in this episode. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. So for that, we've got uh, Rob DeFeo here tonight, live from the UK. How are you, Rob? Welcome to Startup Brain. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Alex. It's uh, very exciting to be here. How are you? How, how have you seen this change in the industry? Like we were commenting on this, right? It was in traditional industry 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, developers were, were, were mostly a commodity and we were not very well paid, but it, it was not so much about the pay. It was, not, it was more about the recognition, right? We didn't get this, this sort of recognition that, we've get right, that we got right now, right? So how have you seen this industry? And maybe you can introduce a little bit yourself as well. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, so I'll just introduce myself. So, yeah, I um, I kind of always fall back to I'm a developer or an engineer. That's what I, that's what I spent my teenage years um, all the time in the evenings learning how to do. It's what I enjoy doing, um, and I get a lot of kind of excitement from it. And and like you said, now people are interested in what I do. But when I grew up, this was never the case. It was just the fastest way to end a conversation with a new person you'd met. What do you do? I work as a developer. Oh, okay, cool. Um, that was it. Uh, but now it's completely different. And I think like maybe even a really visual way of thinking about it is a lot of the companies that I worked at earlier on when I was a developer, um, you'd be based in the basement or in the corner of the office or, you know, in like even like a little hut outside. And now when you look at kind of the environment they look to create for developers, it's, it's a dream in comparison. Like it's kind of, you know, um, as everything there to help you um, be as effective and, and useful as possible. Um, and, and that is such a huge change. So you kind of see what's going on there. But I didn't think this at the beginning. I just did what I wanted to do and I enjoyed doing it. And, and the world has changed around us. Yeah, there's also like a bit of a language thing over here, because at least in Spanish, we say, we, we, we never used to say we're developers, we're programmers, we'd say. And that just mm -hmm. makes it like geeky to the max. Like you're extremely 
weird as a person, like introvert. You play Dungeons and Dragons and you, you listen only to heavy metal music and all of that. And so in order to kind of like conceal that fact, I would say I'm a consultant, right? <laughs> and consultant all of a sudden is like, okay, this is great because you work in Deloitte, this is the top four, right? But yeah, being a developer was not, not so cool like nowadays. But do you think like when my first question would be like, do you think that the, the breakout of the startup industry help to make this transition happen that, you know, all of the sudden developers need to be treated well because we need only the best and they provide like, you know, I think was probably not Google, but Google was sort of the big catalyzer to bring more perks and benefits and different culture and all of that to developers, right? To treat them well because they're your biggest asset. I think, so it's, it's a combination. So some of the larger companies started figuring out that, um, you know, you, you know, there's better ways to motivate developers than just increasing their salary all the time. Yes, they want to be paid what they, they're worth on the market, but there's other parts that make the job enjoyable. Like for me personally, I found that being able to work with a good laptop, um, uh, you know, the latest technology and time to learn was like the things that I was mainly looking for and culture, of course, inside the company. Uh, and, and then some organizations started to do this. A startup is a, a way of going almost beyond this because you have, as a developer, an outsized impact on the staff. When you're developing a large organization, sometimes the work that you do, you know, it has a big impact on the product, but you as an individual can get lost inside the organization um, if you kind of take it from its whole. Whereas a startup, you are like part of it. Like many startups wouldn't exist without the technical um, co-founders there. So, and that's such a difference um, when you kind of think about the impact that you can have. And also, I would say like another evolution I've seen in the path of the developers is that back in the day, they were forced, or we were forced to go up the technical, uh, sorry, the management ladder, but we couldn't evolve technically, right? I was sort of, you know, if you're a good developer and you're a senior, you transition to be a manager because no one wants to, to, to have all developers. I don't know why it was this way, right? It was sort of an industry thing, perhaps. But as time went by, I think that a lot more companies adopted these sort of technical career path. So one of the things I want to talk about is your one of your roles in AWS, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, what you do is mentoring CTOs, right? So what is exactly this mentoring that you provide? And is this aligned with the traditional two axes of the uh, evolution of a career path for a developer? Or are they like, you know, different shades of this, this progression for a developer as well? Yeah, so many of the people that kind of I, I spend my time monitoring, uh, mentoring, sorry, are, are more on the um, the CTO side or like trying to aspire to that. So I think what you're kind of see is inside Amazon and many organizations, you have concepts of an individual contributor or manager. Uh, and they're two different career paths, but without saying one is above the other one. So I followed the individual contributor career path. I really enjoy that, especially in an organization like this. It suits me really well. Um, but if you're kind of looking to be a, a CTO, um, I think as an engineer, you can take different paths. You can kind of become more senior, more principled, become like the authority in your organization or the person that everyone goes to for advice around certain technology or concepts um, or groupings of these. Um, and as a CTO, though, you, you need to have a bit of this. You need to be technically credible. Um, that's fundamentally important. But you need to have more. You need to be able to also combine enough managements of uh, enough elements of management that you can lead a whole team a department and drive the kind of the direction of the company and that's a really big gap from developers to that so what you were describing before was something that i definitely saw when i was growing up you take your best developer 
um, who often is not the worst potential manager, but one of the worst potential managers, move them out of the role where they're doing some great work and put them into this new role and, um, and then kind of watch their productivity disappear and then everyone else productivity. With startups, it's quite different because often the people that join the startups care deeply about the product and they get the customers. Often it's the same type of customer. So it's easier to make that type of transition. Um, and I think you can let go of some of the activities you do as a developer more slowly. Um, but if you were to kind of think of the question of um, how much coding should a CTO do, that, that varies dramatically depending on where you are during the journey. Exactly. And one, one of the things I've seen, and perhaps this is you know, a sign of the times, right? Nowadays, most developers, they come from developer boot camps, right? They don't come from the traditional uh, path coming from university or from no other studies, they are people who, you know, they used to be designers, they used to be whatever other profession, and they said like, oh, this web development thing or mobile development thing seems to be cool, they pay well, I've got lots of friends in the industry, now it's cool, you're not geeky anymore, like you're actually, you know, you've got a great reputation, if you're a developer, you get to work for like, you know, Amazon and Google and Facebook and and and, and, and all of these kind of companies, and, but nowadays, everybody seems to come from, from the these boot camps, right? And I've got this, this concern. I don't know if it's a shared concern. That's why I wanted to bounce this off you. Is that in a relatively short time span, in like three to six months, they are producing lots of or tons of um, highly skilled people, but in such a condensed way and in such an intense way that a lot of them burn out. And maybe a lot of them, they don't even realize that or they think that it's going to be like this all the time. And I don't think in three or six months you can actually prepare a person to become a developer full-time. I don't know what's your take on it. I know it seems a little bit, it's kind of like a thorny question, but uh, what's your take on this, these new generations of developers being produced by the, by the thousands? Yeah, it's, I took a definitely a different approach because I went and essentially self-taught myself on the internet. And I think at that time, people would look at it and go, that's not the right approach you should have taken. Like you don't have yeah. all the rounded skills that are needed to be able to be in a thing. And I think they were right to some degree, but what was not necessarily accounted for was the ability to continue that process going forwards. And I think oh, when you kind of see these new developers come into it, like after whatever, I don't think I've finished learning um, in development. And I don't think most developers that have been a long time are still saying the same thing. So as long as you kind of have that mentality of like, yes, I'm still learning and I'm still developing and still getting better at what I do, it's going to be okay. What's I think a big difference between now and in the past is, is actually kind of what happens with some of the, the, the providers of, of cloud or services. They remove a lot of what developers need to do. So sometimes you'd need to think about how are some of the lower level components, which are often some of the more difficult components to kind of wrap your head around and spend a lot of time building and getting there, you can now stitch things together and provide like a whole ton of value on top of it. Um, and the word developer is really going to, it's a really wide compass, um, like spectrum of what it encompasses from someone's skills, training, personality. But I think um, as long as you build the traits into people of continuously learning, continuously improving and getting better, then that's okay. I mean, my experience from when I was learning to code and actually still now coding is the excited feeling that I'm getting something done and it's going really quickly, which lasts for like about 10 seconds. And then I hit a wall, which I'll just keep hitting again and again, and again, until I eventually solve it hours, days or weeks later. And then I'll have that feeling of sprinting until I hit another wall like 30 seconds later. Um, so I think as long as you have the determination to work through problems in a systematic way, that's probably the most important trait. 
everything else can be taught and it's just taught over time. Yeah. And so what's, what would you be your, your advice to kind of like continue reinventing yourself? Because you said it, you learned, you taught yourself how to code and you've been, you've been keeping up with the technologies. You're still learning new programming languages. You're still learning some stuff. And that's what I think most developers should do, right? But one of the byproducts, or one of the effects of development bootcamps is that they seem to be producing people who like to have a fixed title, as in like, I'm a front-end Vue.js developer, and that's it. Like, I only do front-end. I only do Vue.js. And that's, that contradicts, at least in my head, I might be biased about it, but at least it contradicts my idea of a developer, because I think one of the great things that we've got is we can actually delve into other codes we don't know, learn many programming languages, learn many frameworks, work in different industries, jump from sector to sector, and be useful to all of them, right? And you're one year you're working in banking, the next one you might be working in the travel space, and the next year you might be doing fintech in completely different technologies. That, that continuous learning is what makes development great. But I might be mistaken. It might be just a change of the time that I'm stuck in the in the in the early 2000s what's your take on it it's like the specialization versus the um you know more like generic kind of of developers who can deal with pretty much every situation yeah so i i think the the magic if you like is the ability like writing code is extremely transferable skill so when i was uh, first done that i transferred it to different industries really easily the problems really easily then transferred to different countries and it became like this really fun adventure I've been able to try so many different things in, in career life. Um, but I think at the beginning, I can't remember exactly, but I probably would have pigeon, having a pigeonhole for myself or like a, a tighter definition makes it easier for me to get my first role and opportunity. It's like you're reducing the scope of the problem. If you think about a feature, you want to scope it down so that you can tackle it. Then after I kind of was able to kind of build my first, you know, fix my first bugs, build my first features, build my first kind of product, then felt more confidence to take on wider a range of things. I think someone's gone through a quite short bootcamp, being able to say, okay, now solve any number of these problems is, I think would be a really difficult thing to ask. But over time, I think people will get there. Um, and that's, that's super important. And you may have people that will, that will specialize, but probably just become really deep specialists in what it is. And you en end up in that sort of um, individual contributor sort of specialization or principle, et cetera. So I think it's as long as people are continuously learning go for that path, it's okay. And I think we need to be aware of existing developers, people entering the community with limited experience. It's so different. I mean, when I joined um, a company, I've been a .NET developer for like eight years, a new language inside out, haven't touched it. In probably more than like 10 years so now i've probably forgotten everything it's a very perishable skill but the first time i moved to then work on a java code basing team i knew nothing i didn't know java I'd come from windows background it's java it was linux the only existing piece of technology was uh sql server and it was i like to learn one new technology at a time being dropped in the deep end of everything new i was fortunate enough to be sat next to two very smart and patient people i could ask a lot of very simple and dumb questions from And they helped me immensely. And I just then accelerated and learned more and more and more. And after I learned my second big language, I don't feel any concern about learning new languages now. I can pick up code. I can start to interpret it. I can start writing. I'm not saying going to be great at a new language quickly, but I feel really confident in that. So I think it's just helping people go through them phases. All right. So, yeah, in the beginning, you've got a really good point. It can be helpful because... If you're looking for a first job and you go niche and you say like, you know, I only do front, I only do VJS, for instance, and a company is looking for that, he's, that company is going to get that from you, right? 
Whereas maybe you don't appear on the search results for companies looking for some specific language and you might be doing that language. So in that point, I think it's, it might be actually a good thing. But how about as they progress in their careers? Because as a, a famous CTO put out recently, specialization is for ants, right? And so he didn't really accept the idea that, you know, the more you progress in your career, the more you should be specializing in a technology because that could actually drive you off the market or, you know, um, the more senior you are, the seniority in his words, and I'm not going to say his name, but basically seniority in his words was described as being able to do as many languages as possible, being having been in as many different experiences and backgrounds and companies and sectors and company sizes as possible. So, okay, specialization in the beginning, all right. How about as you progress later on in your career? Uh, so then I think it depends how you're what you want to do. So if I was um, as a standard CTO when I was doing that before, I want people that could do everything because I do not know what we're going to do next. So like, if you kind of put the lens on it from a standard point of view, the more generalist um, and the pick up anything, the, the more useful someone is inside of it. Um, when you, if you know what you're doing and you're going to be doing it a long period of time and you actually go into a very kind of deep technical level on it, then specialization becomes more useful and important. So I don't think there is going to be a statement that can just wrap up everything. It's all going to depend on the situation, which is probably a really unsatisfying answer. But it's, it's then from yourself. Like, what do you want to get out of your career and do? Like, if you want to be the world's best at something, you're clearly going to need to specialize. If you want to try as many things as difficult, you want to be as generalist as possible. And I think that's just a personality choice and then a path that just commit to it, um, whatever it happens to be. I think you're going to be the best version of Alex and I'm going to be the best version of Rob. So I got to know what that is and, and follow through with it. Yeah, there could be like a business answer to this, which is perhaps, you know, you work with a lot of different companies every day. So maybe you can tell us like the distribution of technologies these companies work with and whether they have more, they seem to go for more specific profiles and super specialist profiles or more like generic developers. What's your, what are the companies you work with dealing with nowadays uh so, so now um actually like the, the skill set that's most in demand um or, or one i say most in demand one of the skill sets that people are really looking for is machine learning developers or right. data engineers yeah and that's a like a skill set that's quite new for people so then you have that kind of situation of like who can skill up into that particular um skill set and become effective but then there's a type of layer of effectiveness when i was kind of learning machine learning um, and built chatbots uh, eight, nine years ago, we, you know, there wasn't a lot there. So it was very much going from, from nothing to something. And I felt that I felt very satisfied. I was able to learn something new and build something that kind of worked. But when I was sitting down with people that had a PhD in machine learning, I knew that they could build a better model than me. Maybe they couldn't build some of the other components in and around the outside of it. And then it just made better to kind of mesh these, these skills together, really. So... To go kind of back to what you're saying, like it's it's finding the right problem to solve with your skill sets. If I go and apply myself to something that doesn't fit with me, um, I'm going to do a ba either a bad job of it or be unhappy. So it's it's getting that right environment for you and the problem. And so with startups, it's often about being generous, being able to learn things quickly. And also, if you think about like from a large company, if you came from a developer, the, the main old goal when you release a feature is not to break something. Do not break anything that's there. Try and make something better. From the startup, the goal is like, let's get stuff done quickly. Like breaking stuff, fine. You know, whatever. As long as we can get features outdoors as fast as possible. And that's a completely different mindset. 
Yeah, but to sort of, um, it's a good point here when you say that, you know, machine learning is kind of like what everything's looking for nowadays. Even like us and consultancies, we get like, by the way, also besides web development, do you also do machine learning? It's like, oh, well, we don't or we, we might do it, right? But, uh, but it's also a skill set that we've seen, you know, increase in the, in, in the recent years. But funnily enough, when, when the demand is there, what the logical response for most people would be, hey, okay, I'm going to go for the, you know, some courses, some training, some, you know, whatever, I'm going to get some online degrees or whatever. Like, in the beginning, it's good to be a first mover. So I want to discuss now whether it's good to be a first mover or not. Because if you're a first mover, maybe it's going to be difficult at the beginning to find a job. But like later on, as more people, like as this is becoming more democratized, you know, the value of everybody having the same knowledge kind of like dilutes that knowledge, right? And or your your intrinsic value, right? So how would you advise people to to kind of like reskill themselves to go for another kind of career path? In this case, maybe let's take on machine learning. Beyond like the exact example of like reskilling yourself from, should we say, back-end development into machine learning to make it more of a solid example. Like even if machine learning now was not a used skill in the world, that trait or that ability to reskill yourself into something is a timeless skill that will just help for whatever comes next and afterwards. So like when people are kind of coming to me, should I reskill for this new thing? I'm not sure it's going to be a big thing or not. I'd be like, yes, like go learn the new thing. You'll get better at this new thing and you'll probably get better at what you were doing before because there'll be some new knowledge that you can apply and bring to here. If it doesn't work out, you'll get your old job back to some equivalence. Mm. And if it does work out, this would be a great new area for you to be able to kind of you know work in having that ability to do some of the first things out there is extremely exciting. Like for myself, I think for a lot of people, like you're doing something that isn't yet done. That's like the dream of like, you know, teenage me. Um, so I think technology allows you to do that because things move so quickly. Um, but that skill set, that trait of being someone that can show flexibility is almost a bit like what your CTO was describing. You don't necessarily have all the skills. They can do everything but you're someone that can learn them in a relatively short period of time and be effective in it. I think that's a, maybe a more realistic interpretation. Now about, okay, let's, let's take the, the career path from, you know, what the, the title of the topic today, the, the talk today is transitioning from being a senior developer to CTO, right? Um, there might be a bait off, you know, there's a trade, there's kind of like a, a hind in here because, you know, you, CTO is essentially a very senior developer, right? But we tend to think that we are not as skilled as the next step in our career requires us to be. And there's this thing called imposter syndrome, right? Right? And you think like, oh, I'm not qualified for this. Whereas if you were forced to kind of like transition to your next step, you would probably pull it because job offers, usually we're very, we're very, very, you know, demanding in our job offers when we are companies and we require all of this, like six years experience in this, 12 years in this and that. It's actually, I read this, this um, I think it was IBM asking for, you know, 12 years experience in, in Kubernetes as like, it's not that old. That technology is not that old, right? And that was posted today. So it's, kinda, it's going to, you know, it's an exaggeration. It's almost like a, a caricature. But like, so how would you advise people to say, like, would you apply for jobs that are more demanding than, what, than the skills you actually possess? Or would you progress in your career inside the same company? What's your, what's your take as a mentor? usually uh so, so because i mentor so many startups it's usually like the best benefits to you tend to be in 
progress it inside the company that you're inside that okay. you're working at. Um, but just to touch on the other question for the moment, we'll, we'll come back to them in more detail. Like, I think if you're applying for a job and you hit every single requirement, um, as a, a developer that's continuously improving and learning, like, how long is it before you're going to get a bit bored? Yeah. Like, if you can already do the job from day one, where do you go from there? So you kind of want to know where do I go from there? So I, I get asked the question the other way around a lot, um, which is I don't have all the skills or the requirements they're looking for. Should I still apply for this job? And like, that's literally an absolute yes. Like, you know, the, no one should be really expecting all that if they're looking for someone to grow. If you've written a good job description, you should write them in order. Um, and if someone's pointing out the bottom two they don't have, that's fine. Um, and there's other things that you can bring that make that, that, that kind of make up all that, that make it worth it. And now, how, oh yeah, sorry, you went to the same. No, no, it's just say, so on the startup side specifically, the reason I kind of say that usually the best options are actually within your company is because that company is going to grow so quickly. If it's a, if you if you're at the right startup, it's going to grow so quickly. So I've seen people that have started as engineers that ended up becoming VP of engineering or CTOs because they've they've gone through that process and they've learned and they've been able to um, get all that experience that no one else had. Like being there from the beginning is incredibly valuable as long as you're someone with that potential and the, the, the trait to keep growing and improving. Um, so that I think is often a better thing to do from a career point of view and sometimes if you're at large organizations and the growth opportunities are a bit limited then moving roles might give you that kind of step yeah i i agree to a certain extent with this but then again i've worked enough in the in more in corporate environments where the only way to progress both in salary and skills or in role is to hop around jobs right if you keep your own job like they're probably going to give you the tasks of your upper level but you will remain with the same role and the same pay because if they promote you to a certain role, then they got to give you that pay, right? And most corporate jobs, at least my, my experience, the experience of people, perhaps in my generation, has been not so lucky. Whereas with startups, it's, everything is like great and shiny. But how about the people in the corporate environment who still don't feel that comfortable about switching over to the startup side and Perhaps that's an experiment that doesn't work because we all know it looks bright and shiny, um, the, the startup world, but it's less stable. It's really less, it's still less stable than the corporate jobs, right? I'm not advocating for corporate jobs, but you know, some people don't have that drive, don't, don't have that passion. They just, you know, they just want to stay for like eight hours a day in an office and they don't want to be bothered around with company events and parties and whatever, right? They just want to have like a big job and calm thing and don't bother me with, you know, company retreats and whatever. So for the people in the corporate industry, more traditional roles, maybe not even corporate, also, you know, uh, small and medium businesses that they have their, say, three, five developers, something like that. How, how can they progress within the same company if the company puts like a really low ceiling on top of them? Um, I, I think then... It's been able to show that you have more value to you uh, as a developer. Um, and in stunts, make that a little bit easier for you. Because when you're coming to it, there's this blending often between technology and product. Like, so if you think of like, the CTO role right now today in an earlier stage, like Series A type stage company, often that is the same person. So then you get to show more than just your coding skill. It's the ability that you can create product and a feature that makes a big difference to the business and if you're in the right one that's going to grow and kind of expand and, and keep increasing with time um so then but you've got such different 
personalities and what people are looking for. I remember when I went to go, um, so I was working at Expedia, great, fantastic job. Like I was doing an awesome job. I absolutely loved it. Um, but I got this bug because I wanted to go and start a company. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this idea, I built some technology around chatbots. It was like, you know, really early on in that time. So I knew I had a window in time to go do something, but it was going to get shorter as more people entered into the market, become less promising, let's say, as a product built. So I, I, I went, Heather and in, and my colleagues thought I was crazy. You know, this was a huge risk. And at the time, I didn't think it was that much. And even afterwards, it wasn't really a risk. We're very fortunate as developers that it's such an in-demand job that there will be roles for you when you try and do something new and different. And it didn't set me back as in like, oh, I had to go you know, further back in my career to do something else. It just opened up a whole new bunch of doors. And, and the learnings that I had in that became more useful to me and made me a bit more of a rounder type of perspective from what's possible. So I think if you, but there is risk, as in like the short-term risk. So if you can mitigate some of the short-term risk, I think long-term risk, you know, it's relatively negligible when you take into account what can be gained for it, or is massively outweighed by what can gain. I wonder, what's the skill set? I mean, now let's put it the other way around. If I asked you, what's the skill set a CTO got to have? Like we would end up with a really long list of generic skills and technologies. And it's got to be like, you know, he needs to understand business, is a bit of a coach, is technologically savvy, knows a lot of technologies, lots of experience, blah, blah, blah. Great. But so who is the role of CTO not for? Let's do it the other way around. Like what kind of developer should not transition to a CTO? Yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, a really interesting way of framing the question. I, uh, I like this a lot. So I think there isn't, I, I've not seen, I don't think like you kind of listed like, you know, what is this sort of thing, but there isn't like a uh, stencil or an, a cookie cutter of a CTO. Like I've seen lots of different shapes and sizes and interpretations of the role and right. some ones that you wouldn't expect. Um, but where, you know, there are some people that just want to spend their time, like, you know, all day writing code. Um, and you might be the best engineer out there, but you're unlikely to be a, a good CTO because people need guidance from you. You'll end up being a bottleneck. Even if you're the fastest and the best coder there, people will end up you know, hitting to you and being stuck waiting based on the things that you want to do. Um, so I've seen some people you know, leave uh, organizations where they felt stagnated because they want to write more code. It's be a startup developer, a startup uh, founder, CTO to write more code. That ends up being a really short-term solution to that. Because until you start hiring a team of engineers, you'll write a load of code, and then suddenly yeah. that'll start disappearing really, really quickly. Right. Um, which is one of the kind of like counterintuitive. So people kind of look back at, oh, I remember that time it was there. So I think that's a really bad reason to, to kind of be a startup CTO. Um, so if, you're, if you want to be in the nuts and bolts daily, um, then it's very, very difficult to do the job well. Um, if then as well, you... you, you like an ideal CTO is someone that just has this potential to grow and grow and grow um, as the company does and as the surrounding things go now. If you can be overwhelmed with some of the things that come at you, um, then you need to find ways to um, get more help. So I think if you're not willing to ask for help, that's going to be another really like a, a stopping point for the CTO. You do not need to be the smartest person in your team. If you're the smartest person on the team, you've made some mistakes in hiring somewhere along the way. You yeah. want to be really open and get the most out of people. Um, so I think there'd be like two of the paths that I'd say to, to kind of avoid. But I've seen some people with no technical knowledge become 
good CTOs because they knew who to hire. They knew how to get teams working together and knew how to think about product. Um, but they didn't have any technical knowledge. So that would have been what I would have thought previously. But it's the end goal, not necessarily the method is what you're looking at getting there. Good point. Yeah, we can actually break it down. I remember our previous conversation was like, uh, you know, you can be the right CTO for a company, but not at the right stage, right? There are several stages. When you're like a super small team and you're only the founders, you can be one kind of CTO there. I doubt the word CTO is going to help you at that point beyond fundraising, perhaps. But uh, And then you've got a small team, you can still be the CTO, but then you transition, you need to scale. Maybe you're not the right CTO for scale, right? So. What kind of stages do you divide the life of a startup uh, in? And um, when do you usually see that you are not the right CTO for a position? Yeah, I think, so you're absolutely right. Like the, the CTO is basically a title you give yourself if you're a founder. Yeah. Um, you give yourself any title, so a lot of people like to do that. Um, and it changes massively during there. So I think at the beginning stages, you might think of yourself as an engineer or a lead engineer. You're coding. Good, you're coding. If you're not, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Actually, a good way to think about it is if right now I was to go join my ideal startup company that I was thinking of, the company we want to be in like 10 years' time, what job title would they give me? And if they're going to give you an engineer job title, that's probably what you're effectively doing right now. Yeah. You know, so you get the idea. So that's kind of how you, how I think it's a good way to kind of think about the, the phases you go through. So you start off often as an engineer and you are the sole engineer and that's what you are. Then maybe you've got a few engineers there. You're not really managing a team. You're more like a lead engineer. Then as time goes on, you're starting to take some team management responsibilities. You still want to be involved in the code. Then over time, um, you'll start thinking about what really is uh, like a, a VP of engineering type role. So you are mainly focused on stuff working being executed well and being functional, like, you know, and then being able to kind of take a roadmap and, and have it deployed and go forward. I think if you're thinking of like a CTO in like a later series company, it's, um, you, you'll have filled out then these roles underneath you. You'll have teams of engineers, you'll have managers in place, you'll have your VP of engineering that's taking care of that execution on a daily basis. And then you're thinking very much on the business and strategy side. Now, at each of the lower stages, though, you'll pick off some of these operational excellence pieces or the business and strategy, some of the leadership pieces. It's just how much of the other pieces you're losing and how much of that. So it's, it's really a continuum that you go through. And how about like, maybe I, I missed this point, but it's like the, the day when you realize that you're not good for this stage, right? What, what are like the, the, the red flags? If you see this, you're not a good CTO for this stage of the company, right? If you don't like, you know, you're going too much into meetings that you don't like in the meetings or you're being asked too much to help with fundraising i don't know like what sort of things we should be aware of yeah i think so what you can look at is is maybe the the time when you need to make a change so one of the things that's very unusual about going for a startup as a cto is everything is changing all the time so what works now is unlikely to be working in three months six months a year's time so it's been able to identify when things suddenly stop mm-hmm. um now, there's different ways of that. So you might see yourself become a bottleneck. We kind of spoke about that a little bit earlier on. And that's where you haven't yet figured out how to remove yourself from your previous interpretation of that role and hire someone else into it. Or if you've hired someone, you haven't given them enough of the responsibilities so that you can move on to the next piece. So often that's about like we deeply care about what we're doing. And we can't quite let go of it. Um, so you need to find ways to let go of things more faster. I think a good way to think about that, it should feel uncomfortable when you give responsibility to somebody. Not scary, but uncomfortable. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, the best way to trust someone is to find out if you can trust someone is to trust them. And then you'll know. Um, so you want to kind of get people into that because you're going to miss out on the opportunities that, that kind of come forward in front of you. I think the the times when, and most of these can be, so most of what we're describing can actually be, as long as you're willing to let go of things and willing to learn and go to the next level, there isn't necessarily a stage where you go like, I'm just not the right CTO for this company. Like, if you've gone through other stages, most likely you are and you're a great person for it. You're probably just lacking the people around you that you need, the mentoring, the leadership. You may need to hire like a much more experienced VP of engineering than, than like everyone else, just so that that can be taken care of. So you can do the next thing. Where though that you can say that it's just not right for you is, um, so I suppose one of those, and he said like, just dreaded going to work. Like he really enjoyed the early stages of like blending, kind of like coding, building the first version of products, get involved in customers and, and features and even some of the business and the investors. But then as it got bigger and bigger and became this, this large, significant, you know, uh, very highly valued company, just didn't want to do it. And it was very much like, I'm either just going to eventually quit because I don't like what I'm doing or I'm going to have to find another solution. And that was where they went and hired their replacement. Um, and they then stayed in the company as like a lead engineer, and and that was a better fit for what they wanted to do. So, kind of understanding where you suddenly become, there's two types of uncomfortable. One is like uncomfortable but like exciting, and one is uncomfortable but like just dreading what's in front of you. And I think mm. just being able to recognize them too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree on these. But how about you're not the CTO? You're you co-found a company with somebody else. And just yeah. because you're friends and, or you think he's the right fit, you give him or her the title of CTO. Giving somebody the title of a CTO too early on might jeopardize your future in the company because you know, he or she needs to be in the cap table with a you know, great share or it's occupying a key position in the company and you're blocking potentially somebody else better from taking over, right? It's not easy to sort of replace a co-founder CTO, right? I, I'm just bringing this up because I've seen it in many times. You know, you create a company just with your fr best friends, not my case, uh, but uh, I've seen it in some clients and some other companies we work with that just because they were friends, they created a startup, startup goes boom, they, they raise pre-seed, they receive, they raise series A, and they are stuck with this completely useless CTO. But just because he's a founder, and a CTO, there's no way to replace him. He's not good for this stage of the company, but it's really hard to replace. How do, is it something you encountered or how would you deal with this? So, so the story that you're kind of describing like loosely you know, resonates with, with some things you see. But often um, it, it never actually, it doesn't always get that far. Because if you've kind of got the wrong CTO in place from the beginning, it's then difficult to hire people. Then going forward, so if I'm an engineer and I'm being interviewed by the CTO and they just don't seem like they're the right person that can help me improve, I don't believe that they're the right person for business, I'm unlikely to join. Yeah. So what, I, um, what I've seen often when this has happened, if there's someone that, should we say, not quite the scenario, but like very experienced on the business side or the product side and they're working with a slightly less experienced one, they might not necessarily give the title, but then they kind of grow into that role over time or not. Um, and this is where you want to really think about how that you're allocating your capital, uh, your equity. But at the same time, you can't be the business person that goes, I got 90% of the company because you're not that experienced, you have 10%. I might not be that experienced as a business person. So yeah, you can't have that sort of relationship. You need to be able to way to reassess it over time as things grow. So um, best it is super important. 
Yeah. Um, when we founded our uh, startup, there was uh, myself, the co-founder, um, and then we took on some of marketing um, and they kind of joined as an intern. And we were kind of debating about like how we figure out the roles and I think got fed up in the end. But right, you'll do with the business side. I'll take on technology and, and she'll have marketing. Um, roles at that point in time or just like, there's you know, no need f- there was no need for roles. Like roles were potentially useful when talking to like investors, but we just said co-founder. That was it. It was done. Like, yeah. didn't need to do it. Like everyone knows, like you might be the CTO, but if someone rings the phone, you're going to pick it up. Um, and, you know, you're going to clean up the table when you go. Like it's, it's a title that doesn't mean very much in the beginning. Um, and I think it, as a large organization, often you say the company you work for first, then the job title. In small organization, often you send the job title, then the company. And when I kind of noticed this, I was realizing we were saying the titles rather than the company. And the startup was the thing we were building. So it was just like, let's just remove this from the equation, what's there. What we're really trying to do, we're responsible for, is this. Um, and then it kind of just helped us just, just focus on, on building what we need to do as individual teams. Yeah, because uh, like, I, I, that's something I've seen also as an, as an investor is that first-time entrepreneurs tend to focus more about giving value to their roles. Even though, you know, it's a company, it's like five people only. It doesn't really matter who's the CTO, who's the COO, who's the CEO, right? It's like, you're five people, CTO of whose team, right? <laughs> like, anyways, and whereas more experienced people, as they create newer companies, they're like, yeah, co-founder and developer. And that's it. Co-founder yeah. and consultant or just founder. And that's it. And later on, maybe they're raised series A, they will just, okay, now we need a CTO. So in that way, they haven't blocked the position, right? So in this case, it makes me think that perhaps the best idea for a senior developer to kind of like go into this full CTO is to never get the title of the CTO too early in your career, because perhaps you will accumulate more fuck-ups or you will get a bad reputation of like, yeah, he was too young for a CTO. I worked for him. It was a disaster. So it's difficult to calibrate when to become a CTO in terms of timing, how to get timing right, right? And it's like, I don't think that's trivial. What's your opinion on this? Um, I think, so, so I've, I've never really thought of it like that. I've always thought of tackling the problems that I found the most exciting and being surrounded by the smartest people that I possibly could be. Um, so sometimes if I think if, if I'm going to be the CTO, like how am I going to surround myself with people that are smarter than me and be able to tackle the problems that like, are yeah. the most exciting? So I really want to work with, the right type of people around. So I think if you want to have like a good long-term impact over your career, you're right. Like don't, you don't need to aim for CTO as a title earlier on. And in some ways it might hold you back because you can't necessarily drop down mentally. I was a CTO before, so I can't take an engineering job in this like startup that's going to explode. Like, you know, I have to be a CTO somewhere. So I think, think about what your real end goal is. Um, and I don't think anyone's real end goal, like deep down is a job title. It's like, the things they build, problems they solve for end users and for people out there. So if you can um, attach yourself to that, you'll have better experiences going forward. You'll end up picking the right type of companies to work for. And as things grow around you, you'll grow with it. Um, and, you know, I've seen people that have grown into these roles um, from like an engineer up to a CTO or the founder that stayed there the entire time and is now recognized that way. But it like looked like that, but everything in between, there was just this, you know, crazy learning process that, that can get missed out on if you're doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. And yeah, and there's a certain point of empathy that all CTOs should have, I think, in my opinion, 
there's a lot of coaching and a lot of talking to people, a lot of HR, even if you want, um, in the role of a CTO, because they say that people don't quit jobs. They quit uh, their bosses, right? So that really resonates a lot with what you're saying here, that if you're not a great boss or a great CTO, people don't want to work for you, right? So uh, in, in this aspect, like, I know people will be quitting your company to join somebody else because they will be researching or whatever the, this new CTO is going, I'm going to apply for that company. There's another, there's another funny story I, I heard really close to, to my, my persona, which is somebody didn't like his CTO and he knew he was technically more capable. He was like a better suited person for that position than the actual CTO, right? So he talked to the CEO, said like, look, I'm not liking your CTO. I think he is like, you know, bringing the company down. Here's my plan. This is what I would do. I wrote a really long document about what he would do strategy-wise, product-wise, technology-wise, everything. And after a few weeks of deliberation, uh, the CEO booted the CTO and he became the new CTO, right? Um, I don't think that's what everybody should do. But how do, you, how do you advise people to go about the situation when you feel you're better than people above you who are hindering your pro progress? That was a long question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's okay. It's an interesting one. Because um, there are times, like <laughs> in anything, I think if you ask the question, do, who feels like they're not paid enough? Like no one's going to say like, oh no, I'm paid completely amount. I want, yeah. I don't want any more. So it's a similar thing. We always think that we can do more or we often want to believe that we can do more than what's there. Um, let's take in the narrow kind of example that you described. Uh, and it's not necessarily exact um like being technically better doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good cto in fact in many situations that's that's not the case you kind of call that empathy um as a cto should have it's kind of what you want everyone to have um much more of anything in tech is, is an important area as well so one of the things that that often is missing um with what makes a great cto is you if you start as a cto and you kind of grow up um your technology department unless you are conscious about this, will look like all of your bad habits combined. Mm -hmm. um, like all of your habits and, and mostly your bad ones. That's a good one. Yeah. So um, as a developer, I'm uh, quite quick at writing code. Um, I don't do a lot of documentation. I do quite a bit of testing. Um, and this is So if I was running a team without being conscious of it, that would just scale like that until it eventually broke. Um, so, you know, the CEO needs to also think about like, how can I, build the culture so that it, it is a the best version of where I would want to work. So I always think that like if I was a CTO, like are the people, would I want to take any of the jobs in this company? And if the answer is no, then something has gone wrong there because I should feel comfortable being like an engineer um, in my own company, if that's, if that's what I was kind of thinking about it. So um, when you're trying to kind of progress in your career, um, I think, Inside the startups that are growing really quickly, there should be so many opportunities. So it's usually a little bit more constructive to kind of go, okay, these are the things I think I can do. Um, and you kind of called out really earlier on the example of where people are um, maybe given the responsibilities but not the pay for doing something. I think this is just like, unfortunately, very, very normal. Um, in almost every role I've had, I've been doing the role before I got given the title or the salary goes to, and that's very common for most people. So accept that as a normal thing. It allows you to go like, okay, do I want to do this? And then when when a promotion is given or liability is given, it's you don't need to worry afterwards. You just carry on exactly as you are before. It allows this slow incremental growth rather than like these big steps. 
that like there's now suddenly a huge amount of risk in this person doing the role. So you should be able to find new ways to incrementally take on responsibilities for people. And you want ideally leaders that encourage that um, growth inside of people. Um, and we're going to take one, one question from the audience. We're going to wrap this up because we're approaching the, the limit. It's basically one of, the, one of the most difficult parts of a CTO, and I know it because I'm a CEO, but I'm often very demanding with my partner, with my CTO, is that we try to bring them too much, perhaps, to the business to help with the business, right? In strategy, in sales, and in some presentations, or meeting, you know, meeting investors, in, perhaps in the case of startups. So, and they find it balanced. Uh, they find it hard to balance because there's a lot of con context switching. There's a lot of friction and all of that. But actually, they know it deep inside that if they don't help with sales, there will be no company, right? So how to deal with these situations with your partners? Is there something like a specific kind of coaching that you do to CTOs to be more empathic towards business? Because most technical people are like, yeah, I care about product and technology, but I don't give a fuck about sales but like dude you need sales to run the company right so is there any sort of coaching you do over there or kind of like sessions or tra specific training to have ctos care more about sales or you know strategy yeah of course uh so i think the, the way i usually approach this if this kind of question come, it's more asking you questions so if this was your view you don't want to pick out about sales at all it's like okay but you're the cto so you have equity in the company yeah the answer should be yes you have a lot of equity in the company says yes okay cool and you care about the product that you're building yes and you care about the customers like yeah okay so like yes the sales isn't your job but if you've built something that isn't getting sold or there's a problem of fiction there you need to go and treat it like any other problem like even if you have to sit and sort of write an issue like why is this not happening like let you know go debug the kind of situation and like figure out what the example is that's really useful If you're building a technical product and they're looking for someone to do technical sales and you're kind of early on, they don't have that role yet, I would suggest you go and figure out how to do technical sales so that you know how to do it. You know how to do it really well. And then you know how to hire someone to do it really well. Because I think it's very difficult to hire someone to do a job you just don't know how to do. Um, and then there'll just be this forever disconnect between you and the sales organization. And as soon as you start putting like lines or disconnection between in companies, it's you lose so much of what makes a, a, a startup a great place to work and the speed and that kind of ownership over the top of it. I agree 100%. Another one coming from the audience is really quick. It's basically, you know, uh, CTOs and tech people, they're basically getting into some kind of jobs and tasks that require super deep laser focus, right? Because you're inspecting like a bug no one has solved. You get to like take a look at millions of lines of code and logs and whatever. So how to maintain, how, what are your, Quick tips to maintain focus for these kind of tasks. Yeah, of course. So um, th this came up in, in one of the podcasts I do um, when I kind of sit down with CTOs and we go through everything. Um, and, and they're very much around like blocking the time that, that's required. So one of the uh, startups that I was coaching, uh, the CEO was kind of like, look, I need more stuff done for my team, but like it's getting, you know, things aren't getting delivered, everything else. And I was like, okay, but how are you working with them? And, and there was these constant interruptions. So it was very much, okay, I will sit down yeah. with the CTO and kind of help them guide through about how to build like a, a roadmap and step through there. But you need to commit to what you want done in a sprint. And obviously explain sprint. And then in between, no interruptions. Like you've got to give that time. Otherwise, nothing will ever get done. So I, I find um, myself, I had like a bit of a routine. I will block out everything in the morning before 11 a.m. 
Um, and I will like not use my phone. Sometimes I break my own routine, but anyway, I'll not use my phone. I'll not open my internet. I will not open my um, Outlook. Uh, I will not open uh, messenger applications I have available. I will I try and avoid using the internet if possible, um, ideally just to look up something, but I'll try and focus on the really important high-value tasks that I need to do with that concentration time. It's then consistent. Everyone kind of knows about that, and people then build things in and around it. And in the morning, I'm not even a morning person, but if I can get something high-value done as the first thing I do, then I'm going to feel good for the rest of the day, and then I'll happily get into everything else. So. Give yourself, work into your day, your schedule, somehow a large blocks of time and be consistent um, with it. Because even if you don't necessarily need it or use it, if you go give it up for something, it's confusing for people. So put blocks in your calendar if needed uh, and try and work it into your, into your working life. Great. Two quick ones and we, we wrap this up. Is, you know, um, we tend to think or to sort of idolize CTOs as kind of people who don't fuck up. Reality is they do fuck up. And when they do, they fuck up greatly. Right. So, what's your biggest tech fuck up that you can share with the audience so that we normalize the fact that we all have big mistakes? Hmm. Well, I mean, you've done yourself. Yeah. So, uh, this is quite early on in my career, but I was building um, uh, the ticket kiosk for, for coaches. And this was like the first ones in the UK that were like nice touchscreen things. And basically, it was um, you go and uh, enter your credit card details. It's uh, before that, it reserves the ticket, enters credit card details, and then goes and cancels it if, it didn't, if someone didn't complete it. I forgot to do that. Um, so we ended up having this out in production because we went from like a small pilot to a really big one really, really quickly. Very, very happy about that. Until we realized anyone that didn't put the credit card or complete it, it just filled up the whole coaches. So we had these coaches that were appeared to be full, but were not. And, and that, I can't remember what the calculation was, um, but that was a large amount of money um, that was there. But then, like, the team was quite supportive. They were kind of understood. Like, you know, in a way, I was only able to make that large uh, fuck up, if you like, because it grew so quickly and so well. So there was a lot that I learned from that inside of it. Right. Um, and there'd been a company where it's, um, it wasn't myself, but someone deleted source control. They got on a server and they were trying to clean stuff up and they deleted it. And the manager was like, well, what should we do about this? You know, should we, we discipline them? Should we fire them? I was like, no, like you asked them to go clean up a server. They went onto it and cleaned it up. They, you know, like I would have done the same. They shouldn't have had permissions to go do that. Um, if you want, you know, if you want to solve the actual root problem. So like we will make mistakes. Um, and I think as a startup, you move so fast. You're going to make some really big mistakes really often. Um, but as long as you're making different types of mistakes, that's okay. Um, if you're making the same ones again and again and again, then you really got to look at things. <laughs> That's a good one. I mean, actually, sometimes some companies profit from these mistakes because they go viral and then they do this like live retrospective or post-mortem. They do it on a Google Docs and share public for the internet. It's kind of like a growth hacking thing because they get more exposure than they would have ever gotten. It's like, oh, wow, this is cool. I want to work in this company. And perhaps they get more applicants than, than any time before, right? And the last so one... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. You want no, to say so, so, um, so, yeah, on that, was, do, do, there was a time a while ago where like, oh, we were down because there was so much traffic was like a way of saying you were doing really well. But then cloud went and took away that excuse from you. Like that's not something you can kind of be successful or celebrate anymore. Um, so, yeah. yeah, these these things change and they change really quickly. Yeah. Our last one. This is a signature question at Start Brian Barcelona. It's everybody has got a useless superpower, something you do exceptionally well, but it's fucking useless. What's yours? Wow, I don't know if it's a superpower, but it's, um, a super, it's useless. It's kind of like I always manage to to misplace one of my socks, 
uh, or I, I forget to lock the car every time I go to the beach or something like that, you know, but you yeah. do it very well. <laughs> yeah, I'm so I'm, I'm really good at breaking things, but I'll quite creatively like when if I've broken something, I'll go to like the IT department or look online and I found a completely new way of breaking something just because I haven't really thought how it was meant to be used. Like, I think I just look at things in such a messed up way. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, I can do this with it and I'll go and do it. And then suddenly everything's falling apart. Oh, this, this is a complete. Mess. And like, I'll, I'll do these things with um, not just technology, but just other parts of my life. Um, things will fall apart in ways that people are confused. Like, how did you manage to break it that way? I'm like, honestly, I don't know. I did this, 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 and this, and it kind of happened. And I was like, but how did you go to that sequence of events? I was like, I can't, I can't give you an answer for that. It's impossible. It's like you, you've deployed the latest version of your software, and all of a sudden you get a call from your wife. So like, honey, why is the dishwasher broken? Something like that. What happened? Like, what did you do this time, right? Yeah, there tend to be these like really long stories and sequence of events. So people are just like, why? Like, how did you go down this? There's nothing that's like, oh, I break it and I find the edges. There's nothing like that. It's just like just weird ways that I use things that just don't make sense. Perfect. That was that was love. That was a lovely chat. Thank you very much. We're running out of time. We're actually a little bit over yes. time. Thank you very much, Rob. Um, uh, if there is something you want to, you know, address our audience saying like something from AWS, you've been super great sponsors from Startup Grand Global Sponsors since February this year, uh, super supportive, especially in Barcelona. I don't know about the rest of the world. I don't care about the rest of the world, but like Barcelona, you're super supportive. So I wanted to say a quick shout out. Uh, but if there's something you want to share with them, also make sure you uh, mention your podcast. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, so then I think like, hopefully many of you are interested in startups or wanting or thinking or found on your own. So check out the uh, Activate package. That's where you can get credits, training and support um, and to go and build uh, and deploy on AWS, which is uh, super useful to um, just Google uh, Amazon Activate and you'll find that. And then, um, yes, as Alex mentioned, I spend my time sort of helping and mentoring CTOs. So um, there's a couple of formats to take. So if you want to get in touch, please just add me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, and check out the podcast where I will sit and spend time with CTOs from startups all over the world. Um, and we go through like one problem per episode. So like try and get really deep into what they had to do, how they had to solve it, um, and all the messes and the journey along the way. So it's not just like, here's the magic solution. It's like everything we tried in the way. And like, I find it super interesting. I get to learn a lot. Um, and then we get to share this with everyone else. So, um, and that's the Startup Engineering Podcast. Perfect. And there you have it. It's a, it's a great podcast. Check it out. And also thank you for being once again in our event here. Thank you for supporting Startup Grind. Thank you, Rob, for your time and the whole AWS for Startups team. And see you in the next event. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for joining. Bye. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?